Have your Bibles open, if you would, as well. We've called this series Beliefs because I want you to know and understand why you believe what you believe. Or, if you don't believe, why not? That you would come to this series at the end of these five weeks that we're doing this series, and you would say, okay, I know more about the core foundational truths in Scripture than I knew before. In fact, um, we started this series a few weeks ago. We gave you a survey, and here's the survey questions up on the screen. It talked about um, the six questions that George Barna gave all across America to American Christians and non-Christians all across America. And I gave you some of the stats. 1% of the youngest generation, the youngest adult generation, age 18 to 25, 1% believe all these statements to be true. 9%, only 1 in 10, less than 1 in 10 of Americans believe these statements to be true. And the hardest one kind of to swallow is less than 1 in 5 people who say they are born-again believers believe all of these statements to be true. And indeed, many of us, most of us here said, no, I believe all those statements to be true, but there were about 25% who said, oh, I'm not sure about this one or that one or the other one, which is why we're going over this, because I want you to know rock solid sure why you should believe each of these statements to be true from Scripture. Which, by the way, let me just say this, question number six says God, or statement number six, God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. I'm going to talk about that next week. And the reason I think that is significant at this time, because I've had a number of people ask me, where is God in the midst of these hurricanes? Where is God in the midst of the earthquake that hit Mexico this last week? Where's God in the midst of these wildfires that are taking place here in even California and displacing families and such? Where's God in the midst of that? Is he really still in charge? Is he really still ruling over the universe today? And my prayer is that this week, you might come into contact with some people who have those same questions. And you might just say, hey, why don't you come this week? Come to my church. It is a great time to jump in and get involved, but next week in particular to hear a message on that so that they will be able to hear that. And if, if they're not able to come, you would still then come and get the answers to that and repeat them back and to share those answers with them um, uh, throughout next week. So that's coming up next week. But today, the question that we're looking at is statement number five. That is, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth because a handful of you here said false. I don't believe that. And, and you know what? That's okay because I shared a couple of weeks ago how not everybody in here believes all of Scripture. In fact, not everybody in here is a believer, and I like that. You don't need to be yet. I pray that everybody as you leave today would be, but we want to continue to have people who are not believers yet to come into our services, to get to see what's taking place in baptism, to get to see about life change. And I know when I put this survey out a few weeks ago, there were a number of people who said, I'm not sure I believe that kind of a statement. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And for those of you who do believe this, I pray that this will just cement all the more why that statement is so important in your life. In fact, here's what I'm trying to do. Do you remember uh, as a kid when um, you built... um, 
building blocks. I, I was walking through our preschool a number of weeks ago, and I saw these little kids playing with these building blocks. And it reminded me when my brother and I used to play with blocks. We, we would take some time in our home, in our living room, and, and we would build these little forts and these little buildings and, you know, these little roadways and these cows. And, you know, um, uh, we'd build these little pastures and these roads that things would roll. And just had a great time building these blocks. But when it kind of got fun was when we tried to build them we had about, I don't know, about an eight-foot ceiling, whatever it may be. And I remember trying to say, can we go up to the top of that ceiling? And so I remember as a kid reading in my children's Bible, Mom would read me stories about the Tower of Babel. Remember that story where they tried to build up? And I remember seeing the, the tower was going up into the clouds as they tried to get to God. I said, let's see if we can build it up. And we got up, and, and, and we probably didn't get up anything above three feet or four feet before it would what? It would... Just kind of topple right over, right? The problem was we didn't build a big enough base. We, we didn't have a foundation that was wide to be able to build it and then to go up and get narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. And what I'm hoping we do in this series is that you have a base. You have a, a reason to believe what you believe. That it's not just you take it as, well, I've heard this always before, and yes, this is what I think. But it's what you totally believe. Because once you believe it, then you start to live differently. Once you believe it, you start to share it differently. Once you believe it, your life change takes place. And so today we're going to continue on that wide foundation as we talk about these beliefs. And, and this is one, question number five. This is one that I actually didn't think that I'd have to address so directly. Um, but this idea that Jesus was um, uh, not a sinless man has really permeated our culture. And not just in the 21st century. Now, I know and I understand why it's a part of our 21st century culture. Because understand this. If, if Satan can get us not to believe the sequence of, of events that happen, that is the fall of man, which happens in Genesis chapter 3, sin entering into the world, then all the rest of Scripture, that redemption plan, if Satan can delete any of those kind of statements or any of those beliefs or any of those uh, equations, any parts of the equations, then the Christian message topples. We don't have a foundation. We don't have a wide enough base for it. And so if he can get us to think, well, maybe the Bible is not true. Maybe God is not in charge and still in control today. Maybe there is an absolute moral truth that you can trust. Maybe Jesus wasn't sinless. And that's a part of our culture today, as it was 20 centuries ago. Because the gospel writers were having to deal with that same issue. Understand this. The gospel writers were countering the Gnostic belief of docetism. That said, basically, Jesus didn't have a human body. He only appeared to die on the cross. The physical Jesus was just a reflection of the divine Jesus who remained up in heaven. That was what permeated first century, what we call now biblical times, in, in the world that the Bible writers lived in. People were believing that there was a spiritual Christ who continued to live while the inferior Christ died. 
saying he didn't die and raise again. That was just an appearance of his body, but the real body or the real Jesus was up in heaven while the human body died, the physical Christ died. That's what the New Testament books in Colossians and some in Galatians were trying to refute that kind of a belief system. We have the same sort of things that take place today. I remember back in the um, late 80s, Martin Scorsese uh, um, directed a movie called The Last Temptation of Christ. Some of you might remember that movie, where he created a very, very humanistic Jesus who actually sinned in his temptations in the wilderness. Some of you read The Da Vinci Code a number of years ago. Maybe you saw the movie as well. In The Da Vinci Code, Jesus had a wife, Mary Magdalene. And ladies, you know there's no such things as a sinless husband, right? Okay? That just does not exist, right? So, (laughs) yeah, right. Um, Poisoning the well is what our culture does with this belief. Poisoning the well creates doubts of the divinity of Jesus trying to topple the tower. And yet, if you go back to Scripture which we here at First Baptist place all of our foundation and all of our beliefs upon what this word says, this is the building block, you'll see that there's no way that Jesus ever sinned. Too many New Testament writers wrote about how he was a sinless person. In fact, if you have your Bibles, open them up, and you can jump back and forth to these verses, but I also wrote them on your uh, paper because we're just going to be taking um, uh, different verses out of different scriptures, but... Flip to them if you, if you can, if you can do that very quickly. Let me read you a few verses where the gospel writers say, hey, let's remember, this is what our belief system is. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, here's what Peter says regarding the suffering that they were going through. He says, for this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Now get this. He committed no what? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, it says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no what? There is no sin, says the Bible writers. 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21, for our sake, God made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin at all became sin on the cross to pay for that sin penalty that should have gone to us. He became the righteousness that we may know God. How about Hebrews? The writer of Hebrews chapter 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet, read it with me, yet without, without sin. And so if you read Scripture, there's no way that you can say Jesus sinned. If you believe that God's word is true and honest and whole, then you can't believe that. But we have people who try and say that he still sinned. In fact, there are some people 
who will um, try and use Scripture to even show that Jesus sinned. Now, I hesitate to call these people even Bible scholars. They are liberal interpreters who take just the Bible out of context, which, by the way, let me just say how important I think Saturday is. For us to have a great understanding, a breadth and a width, a wide foundation of understanding the New Testament. That's why we're doing what we're doing on Saturday. That's why we want you to come be a part of this. So when scriptures get twisted and turned and changed, you can say, no, that's not why that was written that way. Let me just show you. In John chapter 2, some people have said, in John chapter 2, Jesus came into the temple and he cleared the temple. And when he did, he sinned. They, they, they say that he showed anger. They said that he hurt people when he did that. Well, we know the anger that he displayed was a righteous anger. In Ephesians 4, uh, the gospel writers share about how in your anger do not sin. That tells me you can be angry without sinning. They'll say, well, you know, Jesus had a whip. And with that whip, he hurt people. No, it wasn't for the people. It was for the animals that he was moving out because of the buying and the selling, the racketeering that was taking place in the temple courtyards. Other people will say, well, you know, there's those verses out of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. And if you know the story there, it's up on the screen, where Jesus comes to his disciples and said, hey, I'm going to be riding into the city, go to a man, you're going to find a donkey. Um, the man is going to allow you to have the donkey. If he says, why do you want it? Just say, my master wants it, so he could ride into what we know as Palm Sunday, into Jerusalem. Liberal interpretations have said, well, that's Jesus who's conspira conspiring to steal animals. Yes, he was a cattle wrestler by night. Savior of the world by day. Cattle wrestler by night, right? That's not what he was doing. There's other people who would say, well, you know what? What about how Jesus uh, addressed women? He, he was derogatory of women. Or sometimes, you know, you'll say, he says woman in there. Oh, no. If you know the context of Scripture, you know that Jesus valued, elevated the status of women in so many ways, even allowing them to be near him who was a rabbi of sorts, a teacher of sorts, and the women even there at the end of his life on the cross, women being there and near him and by him. So, so trying to show Jesus sinned by the Bible, biblically trying to do, just, just doesn't hold up. So if you believe the Bible, case is closed. But we live in a world that has many people who don't believe in the Bible. And so let's talk about this. Why is this question so important? Why is Satan even trying to get us deceived in this question? Why does it carry so much weight? Let me explain this. Let me have you go back and kind of think. All right. Let's imagine... Um, Perhaps go back in time. This is, let, let's go back all the way to prehistoric time, if we could. And say you are living on the earth, but you are not familiar with the God of the Israelites. You are not familiar with this one true God. And so you wake up any more, every morning, and you see this ball of fire come across the sky in the morning and the afternoons. We know that as the what? As the sun. Maybe you don't quite know it as the sun. You're just kind of curious about what that is. And in the nighttime, you see another uh, kind of a ball of light go across the sky. That would be known as the, as the moon. 
you also know that you live off of the land and the food and some animals and such and plants, and you come to realize that that ball of fire and rain that would often fall helps the plants to grow and your food and your animals to be plentiful. But at times, they're not as plentiful as they are at others. And so not knowing how to compensate for this, you offer some food or some animals to the quote-unquote God of the sky. That's a little g-god, because you don't know this God of the Israelites, this little g-god of the sky, in hopes that he would bless your plants, in hopes that he would bless your animals and allow you to have more food. And so you sacrifice, which works in some seasons, but it doesn't work in others. So you offer more sacrifices because that's all you know how to do. That's all you know what to do is offering sacrifices to these gods. See, the problem with the sacrificial system is you have to keep offering more. When do you ever know that the gods, the little g gods, are ever pleased? It's what we talked about last week when we talked about grace. Paul addresses that. He says, you don't have to get into that system. God has given this to you. He has given you his son. Because in a sacrificial system, you never know when enough is enough. But let's stay in our kind of storyline here. Your culture, as you know it, sacrifices food, sacrifices animals, even times children are sacrificed Because you believe that that pleases the God of the sun, or the sun God, or the moon God, or the rain God, which helps food to grow and animals to prosper. That's the culture that Abraham was surrounded by. His name was Abram when we come to him. And in Genesis chapter 12, you have your Bibles open up to Genesis chapter 12, we see that God appears to Abram. And this is big G God the God that we know, the one true God, who spoke to him. Now, what was life like for Abram? Abram lived in a highly advanced technological land. Some 4,000 to 6,000 years ago, in the capital city of Sumer, a city called Ur. And if you were here last year for our walk through the Old Testament, you would remember they talked about this. They showed a map. We kind of acted this out with the hand motions of the land that Abram was called out of, of where he lived. Surrounding cultures had this not a, a very dim view of God. They, they were not intelligent at all. But this land that Abram lived in was very advanced. They were already using square roots. They were using cube roots. They were using volume measurements. They were using wheeled carts. They were using sailing ships. They were using clay pots and architecture and all the rest. But all around them was more of a caveman type of society. In fact, they, cavemen didn't live in homes. They would eat raw meat. They didn't know that you cook it once you caught an animal. They didn't farm. They would just go and pull berries off of bushes and eat those types of of foods. In fact, when the dead were dying, they didn't even know to bury their dead because the dead would rot and contaminate life and, 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 and disintegrate and just was not a good situation. And so there was no religion whatsoever. But the Samaritans, the Sumerians, 
had an elaborate religion. And they worshipped this sun god. They worshipped this rain god. They would worship these, these moon gods, so to speak, these little g gods. But it was not a personal worship. It was not of a personal nature. And so here's where God enters in. In Genesis chapter 12. And he says, Abram, I want you to go west. I want you to go out of this land. And remember in Genesis chapter 11, shows that the nations were scattered when trying to build the Tower of Babel. And now the Lord speaks to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, reads like this. Uh, go ahead and put that up on the, on the screen there, Tam. Genesis chapter 12, there it is. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Goes on to say, he said, do not, uh, okay, that, that, that's the story that's to come. So he, he asked Abraham to go, not called Abraham yet, but Abram, asked him to go and start up a brand new um, adventure, a brand new land. Abram, we know, is the father of many nations, and in this, he develops this relationship where God reveals himself to him. Now, God, at one point, even asked Abram for a sacrifice. Do you remember what God asked Abram to sacrifice? His son Isaac, didn't he? And what does Abram do? He's obedient. He says, okay, God, if you want me to sacrifice my son, I will do that. But before he brings the knife down to kill his son Isaac, God says, stop. No more. You don't need to do this. And so in Genesis chapter 22, we catch the story where he says, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him from now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, saw uh, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its thorn, uh, horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said on this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. All right, how does this all fit in? This is where history changes. This is where everything starts to become different. Instead of people forever having to offer sacrifices to have a relationship with God, this story foreshadows how God will be the one to provide for us. This is a story that shares about how now Jesus will be coming to be sacrificed for us. And many Bible scholars believe that it was in the same location, the same mountain range, that Abraham was going to sacrifice his son Isaac, that our Heavenly Father does sacrifice his son, Jesus for us. 
Now we see it's not about sacrifices. Now we see that we're not the ones having to reach up to God and trying to attain a relationship with God. Now we see that God has come down to us, to mankind, has made a way for that to happen. Now we see a foreshadowing. This is the Old Testament. A sacrificial system was still in place where the high priest had to go and offer sacrifices for the people. Now we see, though, he's foreshadowing the New Testament that's to come where Jesus will be the one and all time, for all time sacrifice that is done. Now we see the sense of in the Old Testament where it was do, 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 we see turns into done, D-O-N-E. It is finished, it is through because of what Jesus does for us. And here's the foreshadowing that takes place. And here's the reason why this question of whether Jesus was sinless is so important. Please get this and understand this. Because it was only a perfect sacrifice that could be offered. And if Satan can get you to believe, oh, well, Jesus probably sinned, then he can get you to believe, well, it wasn't this perfect offering that was sacrificed. And the tower begins to tumble. It begins to fall. That's what he's played on so many in this culture. That's what he'll throw in front of us. Maybe it's a story. Maybe it's a news article. Maybe it's a movie. Maybe it's a book. But we know from Scripture, Jesus was sinless. And so his sacrifice was perfect for us. In fact, look at 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19. Here's what Peter writes. He says, you were ransomed. From the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There it is. The New Testament writers bringing in this Old Testament story of sacrifices and showing how Jesus had to become the sacrifice for us. Look at the book of Hebrews. Heavy into this thought. From Old Testament to New Testament. Hebrews 10 says, For since the law has but a a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then jump into verse 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There it is. Again, emphasizing that point in the New Testament. That Jesus was that perfect sin sacrifice for us. And yet I wonder how many of us, even though maybe we understand the uh, sinless sacrifice life of Jesus, I wonder how many of us still live by this um, sacrificial system. In fact, I'm reminded of a man who now lives in America But as a teenager, he lived in the African bush. And um, he says that as he was in this African uh, tribe, 
he talks about this story in kind of this, this, this broken English. He said, a man visited our tribe. And as he visited us, he said that we didn't have to offer sin sacrifices anymore or animal sacrifices anymore. He said, when I heard it, I argued with him because I said, we have always offered lambs and goats, lambs and goats. We've always offered these animals. He said, I'm the priest of this village and of this tribe. Uh, and so every week I offer something to appease the spirits of our ancestors. I always offer it up. He says, our tribe, we lived in poverty, but we always scourged some animal up, something that would say, uh, sorry to the gods that we would offer for them. But now this man comes and says, you don't have to offer a sacrifice anymore. And so I argued with him. He said, you no longer have to do it. He said, it's about Jesus who has done this for us. I said, no. So he would go away. He would come back again, and he would argue with me again. And I argued over and over and over until finally he persuaded me. He says, finally, I decided to trust this man's message about Jesus. And I stopped offering sacrifices. And he said, all of a sudden, we had animals. <laughs> and he says in this broken English, the moral of the story is, Jesus saves the chickens and the goats. For thousands of years, people thought, what do I have to give to the gods, little g gods? But the one true God now comes and says, I've already given it to you. You don't have to try and reach to me. I've already come down and given it to you. For thousands of years, people lived with the thought what do I have to offer to receive divine favor? But God says, I have divine favor for you because of what's already been offered for you. Romans 5.8, Paul says it very simply like this. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. That's the sacrifice. And yet, there are many of you here today who still live in some sort of a sacrificial type of system. I've been to lunch with some of you who you don't only work one job, you work two, three jobs to try and please your family, to try and please maybe even a father figure who you never could please all of your life. I went out to lunch with a gentleman who said he works over in the Bay Area, commutes back and forth, works 20 hours a day sometimes. 20 hours. He looked at me and said, do you know how I do that? I said, because you're on drugs. <laughs> he said, yeah. He said, yeah, I am. I have to take those amphetamines to stay up so I can do and I can work. Somehow the work has become the sacrificial offering, hoping to win approval. Sacrifice, just w w by a different name. I can remember years ago when one of our crosswalk worship leaders went to University of Pacific. And um, she explained, she was in college now and life was going much better, but she explained how when she was in high school, she uh, had a history of cutting herself. 
And if you know what that is, it's where people who can't feel emotions and such will cut their wrists, will cut their bodies so that they can feel something. And there are some of you in here today who have those scars on your body even now because you were going through that. Because you couldn't feel and you couldn't feel any love. You certainly couldn't feel the love from God. You know, there are prophets of Baal that you hear about in the Old Testament who thousands of years ago would cut themselves to appease the gods in the land of Canaan. And now today we have high schoolers, even junior hires and college students and young adults who haven't quite gotten what life is to be lived like and what it's about, who participate in that cutting ritual that thousands and thousands of years ago was also done to try and appease a God. Do we still live with a sacrificial system? We just call it by a different name now. I think of a priest, Vincent Donovan, who was a writer, spent time with the Maasai tribe in, in uh, Central Africa. The Maasai are, are, are a culture that resists any sort of moderni- modernization at all. Think primitive, primitive National Geographic type of a land. And Donovan noticed a man who lived on the outskirts of a village, cut off from a community. And he was, when the man was asked why he didn't join in with the village, he replied, um, Years ago I wronged some people and I brought shame onto my village and to my people. And he said, Our people have no way of dealing with that kind of a wrong. We have no sense of reconciliation. So I live as an outcast. You know, some of you are here today. And you've done some things that you cannot forgive yourself for. And you feel like you are labeled by maybe you had a child out of wedlock. Or maybe you went through a divorce. Or maybe you lost your virginity before you were married. Maybe maybe you had a DUI in your history, in your background. Maybe even vehicular manslaughter. Maybe you attempted suicide at some point in time, maybe you just made some other decision that you would say was so stupid. And you carry something you feel now defines you and affects how you interact with other people. And if that's how you are, are you any different than the man who sits on the outside of his village with no system of dealing with what happened? It's why Jesus came. Jesus came so that your past does not define your future. Let me say that one more time. Jesus came so that your past does not have to define your future. Christianity. Christianity does not mean that you have it all together. It just means you know the one who has it all together. That's what Christianity means. And when you repent and when you seek forgiveness, he says, come and see what I have done for you. Understand, no one is in hell for sin. People go to hell because they reject God's provision for their sin. That's why people are in hell. And that's what Satan's trying to pollute. That's what he's trying to poison. He's trying to say, you know what? Jesus wasn't good enough to cover your sins. He wasn't uh, sinless. He sinned. No, 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 and no. This word says no. 
that he was sinless over and over and over and over and over again. And now you understand probably more than 95% of even people in church today why Jesus had to come as he did and why Jesus had to come and he fulfilled that sacrificial system that was in place. And so the New Testament writers jump all over that. Let me give you two verses and then we'll be done. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the New Testament writer comes in and he says, here's what I ask for you. I appeal this in God's mercies. Present your bodies as living what? Ah, yes. Now that Jesus died for you and when you will receive him, now you can be that living sacrifice. Go and live that out. It's an oxymoron. How can a sacrifice be a living? You live because you've given your life. And now he gives it back and you live for him. Hebrews chapter 13. The writer says this. Now do not neglect to do good, and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. What's our sacrifice uh, sacrifice now? It's how we live our lives, to do good and to share what we have. Did Jesus live a sinless life? Yes, absolutely, and he could He did that so that he could be the perfect sacrifice offered to cover our sin-filled life. A sinless life for a sin-filled life. And what he asks now is that you accept that, believe it, and now go live it out. That's our calling. And I pray that that base and that theology now is getting wider and wider and wider as that tower gets built up higher and higher and higher because the more you learn, the more that gets shown to the world around. That the God of this Bible has come for you through his son Jesus to die for you that you might have life with him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and the truth of it. Thank you for your sacrifice that you have given to us. A sacrifice of a sinless man, your son Jesus, on the cross so that we might have a relationship with you. God, you've, you've, you've invaded our story. You've invaded our life. We want, now we want to receive that. Now we want to accept that. Now we want to live for you. Folks, let me just be very honest. Maybe you're here today. And you're one of those people who have not been able to forgive yourself. You've not had a way of reconciliation. It's baffled you. How do I get over this? Jesus came so that you don't have to deal with that any longer. Jesus came so that you can say, Lord Jesus, I give my life to you. I receive you now. I accept what you did for me on the cross. Lord Jesus, come into my life now. And if that's your heart, that's your intention, would you just pray those words after me, Lord Jesus, I receive you now as my Lord and Savior. And what that now means is that you go live this faith out. This is not a faith that just stays within these four walls. This is a faith now that becomes alive in your life. It's a faith where you read God's word. It's a faith where you gather with others. It's a faith where your worship is not just here on a Sunday morning, but it's lived out 24-7 throughout the week. Maybe those of you who are Christians, you've been a follower of Jesus maybe for years, 
but you didn't know. You didn't know that you were supposed to live this out every day and that it's not just a Sunday morning type of a faith. Oh, no, it's not. You're a living sacrifice now. You've given your life to him. He gives it back to you to go live. God, may we be people who take this walk seriously. May we be people who don't just worship and sing words even as we're going to do now, but Lord, that our beliefs would permeate our actions and that our actions would live for you and our actions would show the world, as the writer of Hebrews says, go, do good, and share what you have. Lord Jesus, may our lives share that. May our lips share that. May we share our incredible relationship with you. We love you. Hear us now as we continue to worship and then as we go and live that worship out. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray.